0: Well, I know we, uh, we probably all could sit and think of whether it's our moms or other women that have displayed those characteristics of moms in our life, and, uh, and so we do celebrate the women in our crowd this morning. I thought maybe I would take a moment and uh, share a couple things about the two women in my life that are moms. So my mom's in the center, and then that's my wife on the uh, left, and it, I don't know what is going on with me in this picture, <laughs> Looks like I woke up from a 14-hour nap right there, or something. Um, but my mom, Randy, is an incredible woman. She is, um, she continues to be, and always has been, um, my my greatest ally and one of my closest friends. Um, and I have been amazed at her steadfastness in my life. The fact that she continues to love, that she's never given up on me or our family, and that uh, she's never stopped loving. And for my wife, who's on the far left, Grace, who's wonderful and beautiful, is a new mother now of just about two and a half years, and I am blown away and amazed at her capacity to love and the depth of her spirit and the way that she takes care of our family. So those are the two mothers in my life, my mother and then the one that I'm married to, who I'm so um, blessed by daily. Let's pray as we jump in this morning and uh, we'll, we'll get into our... Our uh, sermon. Would you pray with me, Lord? We <clears throat> we are incredibly thankful for your grace in our lives. We're thankful that you have mercy on us. We're thankful for the mothers that you've placed in our lives. We celebrate them today, Lord. We acknowledge that um, that we are better because of the way that they have loved us and taken care of us, and we praise you for that. We praise you for uh, the fact that uh, that you have given us that. So, Lord, be with us as we jump into your Scripture this morning. We pray that uh, you would give us deeper understanding. give us the ability to listen to your spirit. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today, you can take that picture down because that's just going to be distracting. <laughs> so today, uh, we are jumping into a new series. And, uh, and actually, it's, we're going to be doing two series throughout the summer, which is kind of exciting. So the first is we're going to be studying through a couple of the minor prophets. We're going to begin that next week, and that will go all the way until, um, until the end of August. So that's going to be primarily where we're studying during the summer. But then on the first Sunday of each month, we're going to begin to uh, re-evaluate and look at our seven value statements, the seven values that new community is supposed to be shaped by. And I know it's not the first Sunday of this month, but because we were in Bloomsday last Sunday, we're doing it on this Sunday. Um, And so this morning, we're going to jump in, and we're going to look at the value of being relational. It's going to be a fun value to explore. Now, you're going to have to uh, just understand up front that we're going to be a little more topical this morning than we generally are. But as we study these seven values, we're going to be studying them through uh, the wisdom literature. So Proverbs, Psalms, Ecclesiastes. We're going to be using those books to kind of look at these different values. So this morning we're going to look at relational, and here's what our value says. It's up behind me. It says this. Intentionally committing our lives to each other, following the example of our relational God. Like Christ, whether easy, comfortable, or difficult, we choose to love, to be in community, to invest in others, and to sacrifice our lives for family, friends, the community of faith, and the world. Now, that's a pretty lofty value statement. There's a lot packed into that. But we've got to begin right here. Whether you believe it or not, we are relational. See, it's in our very being, the very DNA that makes us up, is one of being relational. It's why we live in neighborhoods. It's why we have coworkers, why we have friends, family. Even the very reality that we're here this morning points to the fact that we are social creatures, that we were built to be in relationships with others. Now, being relational or living out this value of being relational isn't as simple as just being an extroverted extroverted person or being somebody that's a people person. It's much deeper than that, and it's much more than that. And in fact, being relational isn't always easy. I mean, when you read this value, again, that's a lofty statement. Living into those things, that's a big deal. That's not always easy to achieve that. And I would say even in fact, if we were really honest, we may say, it's hard. Being truly relational can be really difficult at different times. Robert Lupton says this. The fundamental building blocks of the kingdom are relationships, not programs, systems, or productivity, but inconvenient, time consuming, intrusive relationships. The kingdom is built on personal involvements that disrupt schedules and drain energy. I think that's kind of realistic, actually. I think sometimes that's how relationships are viewed, and sometimes when we truly are seeking out being relational, that's how it can feel like. So this morning we're going to look at Proverbs 11 to better unpack this idea of being relational. But before we can do that, before we can kind of get into the practicalities of this value, I think we need to understand that first line in our value statement that says this, following the example of our relational God. See, it's a dangerous assumption to think that we all understand what that means. So let's begin with a little bit of a kind of refresher context as to who is this relational God that we follow. See, the the God that we follow is one who is in relationship with himself. When we speak of God, we speak of one eternal and immutable God that exists in a communion of three co-equal persons. God the Father, God the Son and God the Spirit. All one in essence, power, nature, action, and will. It is perfect unity. It is perfect relationship. There's no jockeying for position. There's no right or wrong, no leader, no follower, no better than or worse than, no hierarchy, no flow chart, no resentment, no frustration. There's only perfect trust in complete obedience total sacrifice to and for one another an eternal and unmistakable love it's perfect relationship in the very essence of the word a three in oneness and a oneness in three now this is a huge concept I can say all these things, but this doesn't even really get at the reality of what I'm talking about right here. We're talking about this God who is in relationship with himself, this God that is triune, trinity, three in oneness and one in three. The theological term for this interpenetration yet complete uniqueness is perichoresis. Here's what C. Baxter Kruger says about it. Fellowship, camaraderie, togetherness, communion, have always been at the center of our very being of God and always will be. It's critical that we see this. And it's just as critical that we see that the shared life of the Father, Son, and Spirit is not one of sorrow and loneliness and emptiness. It's not about isolation and self-centeredness. It is all about fellowship. And fellowship means that God is not lonely, sad, and depressed being. As Father, Son, and Spirit living in fellowship, God is essentially and eternally very happy. The Father, Son, and Spirit live in conversation, in a fellowship of free-flowing togetherness and sharing delight, a great dance of shared life that is full and rich and passionate, creative and good and beautiful. I love the idea of the Trinity being described as a dance, kind of this mysterious dance of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in relationship with one another. Three distinct persons and yet one God, the God that we worship this morning. Again, this is true relationship. Now, the Trinity is one of the greatest mysteries of the Christian faith. We can't comprehend this God. The God that we worship, the God that's in relationship with himself is too big, too astonishing, too amazing to fully grasp. I don't have enough language to communicate it this morning. We don't have enough volumes written about this idea to fully get what this means. And so part of understanding that first word, the word, or that first phrase, the phrase about being, following a relational God is one of taking that step of faith and saying, I trust that. I trust that our God is relational and that that is the example that I am to follow. The Father with the Son, the Son with the Spirit, and the Spirit with the Father. That is the God that we trust in. That is the God that we follow. That is the example that's laid out before us. So it's critical that we understand that that's the God we worship because it really lays the foundation for the rest of our faith. Because the Christian faith is built upon relationship. Without relationship, there is no Christian faith. It begins before creation, before time, God in relationship with himself. And then Adam enters the scene, and now you have God in relationship with humanity. And then Eve comes, and now you have human relationship, Adam and Eve. And throughout the Old Testament, we see God in relationship with the nation of Israel. And in the New Testament Gospels, we see Jesus in relationship with his disciples, Jesus in relationship with Mary and Martha, Jesus in relationship with the Pharisees, and so on and so forth. In Acts and through Revelation, we see the relationship of the church, not only together, people within the church in relationship, but God and his relationship with the church. And so the entire biblical story is based on this idea of relationship. It is the very foundation of our Christian faith. These are the most important things, Jesus says, as a scribe asks him, what is the greatest commandment? He says this in Mark twelve twenty nine through 31, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Essentially what he's saying is love God or be in relationship With God. And then he says, and love your neighbor, or be in relationship with your neighbor. These are the two important things. It all boils back down to relationships. Jesus said in himself that this is the greatest commandment you follow these two things. So the entire Christian faith hinges on this idea of relationship. Once we see the world through that lens, once we understand our own story in light of a relational God, then I believe we can more practically look at our value statement and flesh it out a little bit more and see what those statements in that statement say. So you can turn to the book of Proverbs if you'd like to right now, Proverbs 11. Can we flash that value statement back up there too, Shane? I think it's next there. So let me read this again. It says this, Intentionally committing our lives to each other, following the example of our relational God, like Christ, whether easy, comfortable, or difficult, we choose to love, to be in community, to invest in others, and to sacrifice our lives for family, friends, the community of faith in the world. Now, does anybody have an idea of what the three most important words that I think are in that statement? Is there any hint up there, potentially? Yeah, I think there are three critical words in this statement that we have to understand. Like most Proverbs, each verse is kind of this pithy wisdom statement, uh, oftentimes contrasting the righteous man and the evil man. But in Proverbs 11, 24 through 26, which we're going to look at, it's actually talking a lot more about interpersonal relationships than it is contrasting the evil and the righteous. So we're going to look at these three words, choose, invest, and sacrifice in light of Proverbs 11:24 through 26, this is what it says. There is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. And there is one who withholds what is justly due and yet it results only in want. The generous man will be prosperous and he who waters will himself be watered. He who withholds grain the people will curse him, but blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. So that first Critical word is choose. And I would say maybe this is even the most critical of those three critical words. Because the whole value statement hinges on this word. Because before we can invest, before we can sacrifice, we have to choose to be in relationship. We have to choose to be relational. Bonhoeffer, in speaking about just specifically relationships we have with other Christians, says this. Christian brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize. It is rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. You see, we may participate in this. The choice has been given. Now, we don't always have a choice of who surrounds us, we don't always have a choice of our brothers or our sisters, our parents, the friends, our co workers but we have a choice in how we're going to be in relationship with those people. You see, we choose to be a part of this community just like we choose to love the boss that maybe doesn't value our ideas. Just like we choose to love that irritating neighbor that continues to come and want to stop by and spend too much time in your front yard talking to you. Just like we choose to love the parent that maybe was never really around as we were growing up just like we choose to be a part of this community. The person sitting in front of you, the person sitting behind you. It's easy to come to service and not really be in relationship with anybody here. It's a much different thing to come on a Sunday morning and say, I choose to be in relationship with these people. Verse 24 again says this, There is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. And there is one who withholds what is justly due, and yet it results only in want. Now, I don't come from a farming background, but verse 24 seems to imply that a choice was made, the choice to whether scatter or the choice to withhold. So the imagery is agrarian, but the principle is about abundantly and generously living a life toward others not withholding for selfish reasons. You see, the farmer chooses how and when to scatter the seed. Our value says that we choose relationships. Again, we may not always be able to choose who we're in relationship with, but I promise you that we have the choice in how we're going to be in relationship with those people. You can choose to be irritable. You can choose to be angry. You can choose to be judgmental. You can choose to be selfish. Or you can choose to be patient. You can choose to be gracious. You can choose to be loving. The one that relationally scatters is the one who lives an open life toward the outsider that seeks to love those people who are placed in their life. The one who welcomes the stranger. The one who cares for the friend. Now, I know this isn't always easy. We're a part of a wonderful, wonderful small group. People that I have grown to love and trust very much in the last year. And yet there are still nights where I come home after a long day of work we got to get our kids fed, and we have to get our kids bathed and get them to bed, and it's chaos for that two hours before bed. If you're a parent, you know that that's the bewitching hour for every kid. They're rambunctious going off the wall. And there are times where Grace and I, as we get into the car, we look at each other, and it's obvious that we don't really want to go to small group. Or as people are coming to our house, we kind of look at each other and say, well, here we go. Let's, let's, let's get ready those are the times where we have to choose to be in relationship. Where we choose knowing that it's not always about us. Sometimes it has to be about others. And we strive to say it's always about others. So this is this idea of choosing. See, we have to choose relationship over choosing ourselves And our value statement and the scriptures call us to that. We choose because it always can't be about us. The proverb instructs us to choose to be people that scatters and not withholds. And our, our value statement urges us to be in relationship with our family, our friends, our church, and the world. So as we think about this idea of choose, I want to put up two questions. These are questions to think about over the course of over the next week or so. Do you choose relationships or yourself more often? How are you choosing to be in relationship with your family, with your friends, with your church, with your neighbor? You don't have to answer these right now, but maybe think about that. Say, over the next week, as I think about our value statement, I'm going to think about these questions in regards to choosing. The second critical word is invest. Now, I have a little bit of a beef with the word invest because I think contemporary Christianity has hijacked this word a little bit. We use the word invest to mean essentially disciple. How are we discipling somebody? How are we spending life with somebody? How are we pouring our life into the life of somebody else's, mentoring, walking with, what, whatever the term is you want to use, our value statement says invest. Here's why I have a little bit of beef with it, is there is a subtle, if not incredibly overt sense of selfishness in this word invest. And I think it's in there because this is, this is a, a business term. We live in a capitalistic, market-based economy, and so when we think invest, we think, well, what is my return on my investment. We think about, well, maybe maybe it's a good time to buy a house because house prices are down and so I can invest my money into that and hopefully make more or it's a good time to get into the stock market because I could make more money or you buy gold right now or wh- whatever, I don't know. I don't have any investments frankly. <laughs> um, but but I I I think too often when we hear this word invest, we immediately make the jump to Well, if I make an investment, then there should be some sort of a good return. And let me say this right here you can never view relationships in that way. We are not relational so that we can get a good return. That cannot be our lens when we try to live out this value. Our filter can't be how great will the return be on this relationship. Our filter has to be I love others because I was first loved by Christ. That's our filter. That is our motivation. 1125 says this, The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. The proverb promises that those who water will be watered. It does not promise that those who water will see growth. That's not the promise. The promise is essentially saying, give your life away and life from Jesus will be given back to you. But don't expect a return. Don't enter into this relationship thinking that there's going to be some great return on your investment. He who waters is the one that provides nourishment for the growth, just like the one who invests is the one who lives life with and listens and prays for and supports and challenges and gives of what they have for the growth of another, fully knowing that there may never be growth in that other person, and that's okay. In Young Life, which was an organization that I worked with for a little while, we had this common term that we would kind of throw out We'd say, we love kids regardless of how they respond to the gospel. That was our mantra. We wanted kids to come to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But that's not where our love stopped. So if there was a kid that I was investing in and walking with, and he came to the point of having to make that choice of saying, yes, I trust in Jesus at this point, and he says, no, I don't trust in Jesus, I wouldn't then step back and say, well, I'm going to try to invest my life in somebody else because I want a good return. No, we said, hey, God has placed him in my life for a reason. So regardless of his response, I'm going to love him. I'm going to be in relationship with him. Aaron McMurray, who uh, used to go here but was uh, part of the church plant out with branches, was that guy in my life. My mom gave Aaron a frantic phone call when I was 16 years old. She was thinking that she was losing me at this point because of my wild antics in high school, and I had kind of pulled away from the family, I would pulled away from our church, and she called Aaron McMurray, the local Young Life leader, the only really person that she knew, and said, you have to meet with my son. Because I, I think we're losing them. I, I don't know what's happening, but you have to meet with them. And so I got a random phone call from this guy that I didn't know. Invited me out to Taco Bell. It's the place where all friendships begin. <laughs> and we had this incredibly awkward conversation. Because he's, you know, 26 years old and invites me to, to come out and, and get a bean burrito. And we're sitting there and we're trying to make small talk. And I, it, it really was the first time that somebody had taken an interest and invested in me outside of my own family. What Aaron did so well is that he gave me a phone call that next week. I, don't, I can't frankly even remember how I responded to him. If it was in, uh, in line with how my character was at that point, I'm sure I was somewhat of a jerk to him. But he followed up with me. He made that second phone call, then that third phone call, and soon enough a friendship began. I think Aaron maybe understood this value. Before these values were even a part of new community, I think he got this. And said, regardless of how Kevin responds to me, regardless of what Kevin does in terms of saving faith in Jesus Christ, I'm going to be in relationship with him. I'm going to invest my life into him, regardless of what he does with it. And I think that I've come to saving faith in Jesus Christ because of Aaron McMurray and others like him who invested in my life. We invest in the lives of others because we're called to do it, regardless of the potentiality of a good return. We're called to be a people that lives a life that waters those around us. And so here are a couple of questions. Who has invested in you? Who's given of their time and energy and love to invest in you? Who are you investing in right now? And are you investing in somebody with motives or expectations of a return? That third word is sacrifice. Verse 26 says this, He who withholds grain, the people will curse him, but blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. This proverb is about sacrifice. Contextually speaking, it's about selling or withholding of grains during certain seasons. It was common practice for merchants to hold on to grain so as to drive the price of grain up. So they would withhold, and as grain became scarce, then they could sell it at a higher price, therefore making a greater profit. However, the proverb exclaims that the blessing will be on those who sacrifice their greater wealth for the benefit of others. Relational sacrifice means living in a way that benefits others before yourself. And I would say true relationship always involves sacrifice at some level whether it's a relationship with a family member a neighbor a stranger the person who is in front of you right now sacrifice is the beginning point of that relationship sometimes it's material things sometimes it's time sometimes it's energy but i promise you it's always sacrifice of self Getting beyond yourself to see the people around you. There are two kinds of relational sacrifice that which we sacrifice for the ones that we love, whether it's your spouse, your kids, your parents, moms, which we celebrate here today, I think are known for being people who sacrifice for their kids. That's that first kind of relational sacrifice. And the second is this sacrifice for the stranger or sacrifice for the enemy. These are the times where somebody random comes to your door late at night and needs something. These are the times when you drive past somebody who has a flat tire and you have the capacity to help. These are the times when you figure out a way to love the coworker that you dislike. The scripture and our value calls us to both types of sacrifice, not just sacrifice for the ones that we love, but sacrifice for the ones that we may not know or maybe the ones that we have a hard time loving. Sacrifice isn't easy, but true Christian maturity is seen in the sacrifice that we display for those that are hard to love, the other people, the people we can't stand, the people that have hurt us the people that are just flat out hard to love. That's true Christian maturity is seen when we sacrifice for those. Jesus talked a little bit about this in Luke 9 where he says this, deny yourself, pick up your cross daily, and follow me. I'm going to read a story. It's story time here at New Community. This is a, uh, a book by a guy named Robert Lupton. He moved into inner city Atlanta, and he writes this real short, small book filled with two-page stories that are, uh, are pretty powerful little stories. And this one specifically speaks to this idea of sacrifice. So get comfortable here. And I'm going to read this. it going take me about three minutes. She's 66, has developmental disabilities, Dangerously overweight, twice a grandmother, and a devoted member of our church. She lives with four generations of extended family in an overcrowded, dilapidated house. By her buoyant spirit, or but her buoyant spirit is undaunted. Since losing her youngest son in a senseless murder last Christmas Eve, she has redirected much of her affection to me. You're my buddy, she says with a broad, snaggle toothed grin. I pray for you every day. Then she gives me a long bear hug. She wants to sit close beside me in every church service, and although the smell, smell of stale sweat and excrement is often nauseating, she makes me feel a little special. Her internal plumbing doesn't work as well as it used to, and she leaves tobacco smears when she kisses my cheek. But I'm pleased to have Mrs. Smith by my side. She often hints, sometimes blatantly, that she would like to come home with us for a visit. Nothing would delight her more than to have Sunday dinner with my family. But there is a conflict. It has to do with the values that Peggy and I learned from childhood. We believe that good stewardship means taking care of our belongings, treating them with respect, and getting long service from them. Our boys know that they are not to track mud on the carpet or sit in the furniture with dirty clothes. To invite Mrs. Smith into our home means we will have filth and stench soil our couch. There will be stubborn, offensive odors in our living room. My greatest fear is that she will want to sit in my new corduroy recliner. I wouldn't want to be rude and cover it with plastic to protect it from the urine stains, but I know it would never be the same again. Unknowingly, Mrs. Smith is forcing a conflict, a clashing of values upon me. Preserve and maintain, conserve and protect. They are the words of an ethic that has served us well. Over time, these values have stubbornly filtered into our theology. It is increasingly difficult to speak the values of capitalism from the values of the kingdom. Stewardship has become confused with insurance coverage, with certificates of deposit and protective coverings for our stained glass. It is an offering, a tithe dropped into a plate, uh, into our plate to be used on ourselves or on our building. Somewhere on the way to becoming rich, we picked up the idea that preserving our property is preferable to expending it for people. Why should it be so difficult to decide which is wiser, to open the church for the homeless to rest, or to install an electronic alarm system to preserve its beauty? Why should it be such a struggle to decide what is more godly? To welcome Mrs. Smith into my home on my new corduroy recliner or to preserve my homey aroma of my sanctuary and get extra years of service from my furniture? We did invite Mrs. Smith to have Sunday dinner in our home, and she did just as I feared she would. She went straight for my corduroy recliner, and it has never been the same. In fact, Mrs. Smith even joined a Bible study in our home that next week, and every Wednesday evening she headed right to my chair. She even referred to it as her chair. (laughs) I thank God for Mrs. Smith and the conflict she brings me. In her, more clearly than in Sunday school lessons or sermons, I encounter the Christ of Scripture saying, Inasmuch as you have done, done it unto the least of my brethren, you have done it unto me. If love is the lifeblood of a relationship, then sacrifice is the skeleton. It's that which gives frame and structure and serves to support the relationship. So here's a question to think about. Are you known as someone who sacrifices for their family, for their friends, for their church, for the stranger? As a church, as a community of faith, we have identified relational as one of our guiding and shaping values. We want not only to care and love for the community that surrounds us, but be known as a people that cares for and loves the city of Spokane and beyond. We are relational because God is first and foremost relational. We are relational because Jesus Christ modeled relationships in his very ministry. So, if we were to just take those three words to choose, to invest, to sacrifice, let's look at the way that Jesus displays these things. You see, Je- Jesus always chose the path of relationship. The omnipotent God could have healed from a distance, He could have simply empowered His disciples to do the ministry. And instead, he asked questions of the paralyzed man at Bethesda. Instead, he listened to the whole story of the hemorrhaging woman. Instead, he touched the man with leprosy. Instead, he protected the woman caught in adultery. If we were to look at invest, Jesus spent the three years of his public ministry investing in people always desiring and praying for a return in the way of maturity and transformation, but loving even in its absence. Think of all the times he had to correct Peter, all the times he had to correct James and John, and yet he consistently lived his life with and alongside them, continuing to teach, continuing to support, continuing to challenge and care for and love and sacrifice. Jesus gave us the ultimate picture of sacrifice. His death on the cross was not simply for his disciples or for Mary and Martha. It wasn't even just for all the people that would trust in him through their message. His sacrifice was for the soldiers that mocked him and casted lots for his clothing. It was for those who do terrible and horrendous things in his name even today. It's for those who completely deny him. He gave us the ultimate picture of sacrifice. And he now calls us into this type of relationship. He calls us to be this type of person, to live out relational in this way. And so this is our model. This is what we strive for. This is what should shape us. We are a community that needs to be shaped by our value of being relational. And therefore, we need to be a people that chooses to be in relationship, that invests our lives into the growth of others and sacrifices all that we have because we serve and worship a relational God. Let's pray.